You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense with your host, Doug Thorpe. Here's Doug. Greetings, everyone. You're listening to another episode of Leadership Powered by Common Sense. I'm your host, Doug Thorpe. And today we're going to ponder an interesting question. If you're in a role as a leader, whether you're working for a larger corporation or you've started a business and you're slowly building a team, do you have to be perfect to be a leader and be effective or can imperfection work in your favor? So it's an interesting question, I think. And uh, we're, we're, we're going to get into that a little bit. My de- uh, guest, dad to dad, talk about imperfect. Uh, my guest is a gentleman named Don Culliver. And Don, welcome to the show. Thanks, Doug. Thanks for having me. Excited to chat. As is a bit of a tradition here, tell us first about your background, Don, and the journey you've taken to get to where you are right now. And I, I know we'll cram a lot in a short time, but see what you can do with that question. I'll make it quick, uh, as quick as I can. So, um, yeah, I started as a uh, video training producer uh, for automotive back in Detroit, um, training, helping to train salespeople. Uh, I moved to L.A., started directing and producing nonfiction television, uh, like HGTV, that sort of thing. And then I kind of took a turn. I started doing comedy and performance. Uh but it was all kind of the same through line of I was passionate about communication and engaging with an audience. I was just, how could I do it better? Uh, I landed it as a blue man. Uh, I was a performer for, as a clown for a Cirque du Soleil partner called Spiegel World. Um, and then I started presenting uh, for tech companies at trade shows, uh, cybersecurity specifically, uh, trying to utilize the skill of engagement with audiences. And uh, and I landed at Google. Now I teach uh, technical speaking and how to deliver compelling technical talks and engage with groups at, at uh, internally at Google and at other tech companies. Quite a journey there. And I, uh, I'm, I'm reminded of when we did our kind of run up our, our prep call, we were talking about the Blue Man Group experience and some of the things and the, the daunting training that those guys go through. Uh, just, I don't want to get too far off topic, but you share with the audience a little bit about that. I, I think people probably find that interesting. Sure. Yes. Uh, well, I trained with a uh, Cirque clown by the name of John Gilkey. Uh, I started doing that in Los Angeles and uh, had an aptitude for it. And it was one of those things. It, I loved it. And uh, I don't recommend anyone who wants to make a lot of money to to go into clowning. But um, I was following the love and uh, audition for Blue Man uh was invited to train with blue man but the thing about blue man is you need to be a really good drummer and i am not a drummer so they put you in what's called drum school so i was training in drum school for a year at the same time i was on tour as the host clown for this other show so nightly i'd be in front of 800 people engaging and moving the show along and having to improvise and then during the day i'd be like sitting in my hotel room with my little uh, uh, drum pad, like trying to get, uh, quicker and, um, yes. And then 
I had to learn how to throw marshmallows into people's mouths uh, from 40 feet away, which was a trick uh, in itself. But uh, yeah, it was uh, quite a daunting uh, training process. Yeah. Well, you know, their their show is uh, right on the brink of uh, athletic comedy or what do they call it? It's um, it's another physical word comedy, it. physical comedy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, th yeah, there's there's a good bit of that in their shows, but um, it's wonderfully universal. Uh, and it's 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 the show is very strategically designed to cross cultures. Uh, physical comedy uh, transcends a lot of cultural boundaries uh it's great well i've i've told my wife that in my later years it dawned on me that would have been a great pickup line when i was single and tell them people i was a member of the blue man group and that, <laughs> I, I don't know why i never thought about that when i because hey, you know how do you know how do you <laughs> that's a good point but i can tell you doug it's not a good pickup line it's yeah, not a good pick <laughs> it's probably not it, yeah. it'd be a very special woman that would uh, resonate with that but uh anyway i digress uh so so the point is now a lot of your focus is helping leaders with their connection whether it's to larger audiences or teams of people so let's lean into that a little further what do you consider connection Well, it's interesting because I have to start with clown. Uh, there was a moment in one of my early classes that it really clicked for me. And there's a there's a exercise called save the show and it's terrifying. So what needs to happen is you put the student is put on stage behind a curtain. The odd the class is in the audience with the teachers in the audience and you are required to enter the stage and make people laugh with no pre-thought preparation, like no script, no stand-up act, nothing. And the audience has been instructed, the class has been instructed to give you no pity laughter. You can only laugh if it's really funny because it's easy in a class to be like, he's trying really hard, let's just throw him some laughs. But you're not supposed to do that. So what happens is, uh, or for me, I jumped in, I trying all my tricks, you know, like running around, hitting the wall, like falling down, doing like fart noises with my armpit, like anything, just silence, you know, silence. And I'm sweating, I'm sweating, sweating. Uh, uh, and I was failing, but I didn't want to acknowledge it. I didn't want to acknowledge what was going on between me and the audience. But I finally just like stopped. I felt what was going on in my body. I looked at the audience and I honestly said like, well, what do you guys want? You know? And that was the moment, like everything broke open. They laughed, I laughed, and I kind of had them at that moment because I stopped trying to push what I wanted and acknowledge what was going on in the moment. And once I saw that power, that's kind of what drove all my other curriculums moving forward of like, can you connect into that what's going on between you and your audience or you and your team can you be comfortable with that can you acknowledge that because there's so much power in that oh very interesting <clears throat> boy that would be a and 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 when you have a staged tough crowd <laughs> to try to break through break through 
so how do you translate that for corporate leaders and managers at a place like Google? How do you make that real for them? Well, for in classes, I think it all starts with low stakes practice, uh, setting up situations where people can be in a supportive environment, try new things, fail, get feedback, uh, and be comfortable in doing that. I think it can be challenging, especially in like really high powered environments like Google, uh, where people just are just like, just give me the hard feedback. Just give me the tough stuff. I can take it. And what I've found is that starts to build up this residue of, uh, of invulnerability. And what I'm seeing is more a robot, an amalgam of all these pieces of feedback they've gotten. And I'm not seeing the real person under there. Uh, whereas if I can get people sharing from a true place first, build them up there, I find a lot of the issues and feedback uh, just kinds of starts, it starts to fall away on their own. I'm speaking uh, immediately about like public speaking challenges, filler words, pacing, bad hand gestures, stuff like that. Uh, I find often simply in a supportive environment, some of the bad habits start to drop away without them having to go in and surgically remove it. Now, Google was the one that uh, performed that famous, or now, in my mind now famous study, Project Aristotle, where they brought out the uh, revelation that psychological safety was one of the biggest contributors to high-performing teams. And I thought the premise of the study was dynamite. They admitting to themselves, you know, we hire the best of the best, yet not all our teams work the same and accomplish the same great thing. So how in the world can that be possible? So they embarked on that two-year study, and it's hard to believe that publication of that study is now five years old. So it came out in 2018, as I recall. Do you do you have any insights to what they as a company are trying to do to to leverage the knowledge of that and turn it into reality across the board? Well, I I cite that study often in my classes, and it's just trying to it's just kind of what I said about us building a supportive environment where bringing forward imperfect ideas uh, in kind of the fail quickly model. Uh, is had they showed it's the best way to have an innovative team. If you did define innovation as coming up with the most ideas and the most successful ideas. Yeah. I always wondered, that was the one thing, call it a data point that was missing in that study is what was their definition of a high performing team? You know, is it, was it achieving financial goals or uh, innovation goals or creative thinking? I don't know. You know, it wasn't clear. I mean, you get the context of it. And that was through IDEO, right? I think IDEO partnered with them or something. I don't recall. Yeah. yeah. I don't recall how they did that. But, you know, that whole notion of the psychological safety, which, you know, as my show title suggests, I'm a common sense kind of guy. When you read through all the jargon, we're really talking about just a fundamental element of trust. You know, can can I, if I'm an employee, can I trust the environment I in, I'm in? Can I trust my boss? Can I trust my teammates? 
and trusting them to not condemn me for a silly idea. Let me just speak my mind and share what I've got. And if it doesn't survive the light of day, then great. No problem, no foul, but um, at least it's out there. Yeah, in my like, I, I wrote a book and and uh, kind of bringing this concept to public speaking. And the first, the, the biggest hurdle I needed to s- surmount when I was writing the book was exactly what we're talking about. Um, how do you develop that within yourself? And the I came up, the only thing I could come up with is how can I develop a feeling inside that I am enough even if my ideas are shot down, even if my ideas don't make the light of day. And that's kind of unfair to hook that on a team manager. You know, if someone brings forward an idea and everybody hashes it out, it doesn't go forward. If that person falls apart, is it the team manager's job to be like, oh, you're all right. You know, you, you, good job. You know, how, where's the responsibility fall on that? You know, what do you think about that? Yeah. Well, uh, my quick answer to your question is, yeah, I think the team manager has a little bit of responsibility to sort of reset everything, because if that employee has taken a big defeat, you know, maybe, maybe they really felt vested in the idea, but the team process ended up vetting it and shooting it down. Um, I, I think that it's well advised for the team leader to have a one-on-one with that person and say, you know, I realize how passionate you were about that idea and it was great. You brought it forward. You, you see the outcome. And I, I think we all collectively agree that we need to go in a different direction, but thank you for your input. And when are you going to have a new one? You know, when are you going to have the next one? I, I'm every time I talk about this, I'm reminded of an experience I had with a large global brand and I was doing some team development work and we did a team survey about where everybody ranked themselves and wh- what their impression of the performance of the team was. And, and one part of the survey was this classic sort of four blocker diagram assessment. And everybody's responses were up up in the upper right-hand quadrant, which is where kind of the optimized, you know, scores are. But there was one guy way out in, I don't, I don't remember which box he was in, but it was, it was clearly an outlier, uh, I mean, by big degrees. And we got to the team meeting where we were going to assess this stuff, and everybody had already seen the report. And the manager had talked to me offline and said, I'm really worried that I've got this one outlier. I think I know who it is, but I'm not sure. And what do I need to do to identify them? Because I want to I want to try to be proactive and pull them back into the fray. Well, we got into the team meeting, long story short. And right away, one guy raises his hand and goes, I know everybody's wondering who the outlier is. That's me. That has to be me. <laughs> <laughs> and he started saying, he said, you know, this survey has has just reinforced, he says, I really do feel like an outlier on a, on a regular basis on this team. My ideas always show up contrarian. I, I seldom get anybody to agree or embrace what I'm thinking. And, you know, maybe for the good of the team, I need to go find another job. You know, I need to, you know, move out of here, move on and let you guys have your way. 
And without any exception, everybody else on the team said, absolutely not. Oh, wow. That's amazing. We, we we're sorry it turns out that way, that that's the outcome and it makes you feel that way. But, you know, now's the time to tell you we need your contrarian thinking in our process here. It has huge value to what we're doing and don't even think about moving on, at least not for this. I mean, if you've got another reason you want to move on, that's okay, but not for this. Don't, don't move on now. So it was a, it was a real kumbaya, you know, kind of healing moment. there. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. So how do, how do you see managers embracing this idea of you don't have to be perfect? I mean, how far do you take that? Well, I can, I can come at it from a clown perspective, if you will. Uh, because here's how a clown engages uh, in the, in the classic way. And I think it's instructive for what we're talking about. Uh, in a typical clown bit, a clown enters a, a stage, is aware of the audience. It wants to be there. The clown is entered to give something to the audience, something they've worked on, a, a, a bit, if you will, um, a performance. Clown begins the performance, very excited, very proud. Something goes wrong. Uh, there's a moment of failure. Uh, but the difference with the clown is the clown shares like with the audience, their feeling, oh, I failed. I'm, I'm vulnerable. Then kind of through that, that moment, the audience relates to the clown because the clown then says, I can do it. I can do it. I, I got this. Tries again, gets opti uh, optimism, fails even crazier, right? This pattern keeps on happening until the clown bumbles backwards into some sublime success inadvertently. And usually that's the end of the act. Um, but if you look at the engine of that, the way that it's building tension, the way that it's building engagement with the audience is through the imperfection. It's not through the successes. The, the imperfection is what's making the audience connect. And there's some research you've probably there's the blender uh what is it um richard wiseman did like a social pop psychology kind of a thing uh where they he had two uh presenters doing demonstrations of blenders in a mall and one they were equally competent one every time they would attach the top to the blender demo it it would come apart and blend all over the place. Uh, and he showed that the person who was imperfect sold more blenders at the end of the day. This is like total pop psychology. Uh, I found another study though, in 1966 by this guy, Elliot Aronson, he defined something he called the pratfall effect. This is kind of complex, but uh, he had two groups of presenters, one group of very competent presenters, one group of not so competent presenters. And within each group, uh, half of them would have some kind of a hiccup during their presentation. They'd spill their coffee. So half of the competent presenters would spill, half wouldn't. Half of the incompetent presenters would spill, half wouldn't. What they found was within the competent presenters, 
the ones who had the hiccup, the ones who spilled were rated as more uh, friendly, more nice, more warm than the ones who were perfect. That's the competent presenters. However, the incompetent presenters, the ones who like uh, were not looking at the audience, they weren't uh, hadn't practiced their uh, speech or whatever. The ones who spilled their coffee, audience just hated them. Like so, basically, the takeaway is: if you are prepared, if you are competent, imperfection actually adds that little bit of the hard to define characteristic of warmth. It can it can make you more relatable. But you need to be competent first. Very interesting. And um, <laughs> I've told this story before on, on the broadcast here. I had a mentor as I was going into the military. He was a senior officer nearing retirement. He told me, he said, Thorpe, he said, I'll give you a word of advice. You're getting ready to get commissioned a second lieutenant. Nobody cares. Nobody, nobody expects anything out of second lieutenants. You, you can mess up, and nobody cares. He said, as you get to be first lieutenant, you're, they're, the expectation will kick in. You'll, you'll, you'll need to be doing something. He said, but here's my advice to you. He said, work real hard those first four years. And about the time you're eligible to make it to captain, he said, you need to screw something up really bad. And... He said, not to where you cause any, you know, permanent damage or cause any lives or anything, but just screw it up. And they'll investigate it, they'll look, and then they'll say, hmm, and they'll look at your whole body of work and go, oh, this guy's a pretty good officer. We need to put him on the short list. <laughs> <laughs> and... I, you know, I laughed when he got to the punchline. I said, uh, well, sir, th thank you for this advice, but no disrespect. I don't think I'm going to do that. <laughs> Strategic screw-ups, it sounds Strategic like. Strategic screw-up strategy. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, challenges were enough. You didn't have to plan a screw-up. There was going to be one, so, it, you know, it played out. But, uh, uh get back to that imperfection thing. I, I think that really so many people in elevated positions of leadership, they're worried about looking like they've, they've got a shortcoming or they've got a shortfall. And uh, so much so in, in the coaching world, we talk a lot, clients bring to us the so-called imposter syndrome. You know, I don't think I belong here. I don't feel like I belong here. And you dovetail that within, with a training that says, well, if you're going to speak in front of the large group, you know, it's okay to be a little imperfect. And here's how you do it well. You know, and, and now that I say that, that sounds a little odd. You learn how to be imperfect and do that well. <laughs> I like Am to I say, hearing that right, Don? I like to say... Because sometimes folks will ask, <clears throat> I want to be funny. Like, can I tell jokes? And I'm like, don't, no, <laughs> don't try to write a joke. But um, uh, you can if you want, but it's usually there's easier ways to, to engage uh, with humor. But <clears throat> one of which is to uh, make fun of yourself or take yourself lightly if, 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 PowerPoint goes awry if if you spill your water on stage. <clears throat> uh, 
I think taking yourself lightly and being able to laugh at yourself, joke at yourself is the best way to engage on that level of humor or lightness with an audience. But I like to say, take yourself lightly, take your message absolutely seriously and your competency in your message absolutely seriously. Uh, when I'm coaching uh, sales engineers to speak uh, at trade shows, a lot of times they're pretty nervous. Like who knows what you're going to have and deal with. But, uh, and I think it's fine to acknowledge that it's fine to be nervous. It's fine to uh, make fun of yourself and what you're dealing with, but never make fun of your skill level, never make fun of your messaging, because that's the thing that you've worked your whole life for. We're not here to see, you know, Barack Obama, like killing it, like presenting. We're just here to hear the message, the thing that you have that nobody else has. And if you remember, I'm just a conduit. I'm just a, 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 a pipe of information. I'm here to be of service to these people. Uh, and my whole job is to get myself out of the way as much as possible. It also helps with nervousness, anxiety, because it's not on me. It's not on Don. It's on all this messaging that I have. <clears throat> yeah. It, it is. Uh, I, I haven't seen data lately, but uh, once upon a time, there were studies that said, you know, on the like top 10 things executives and, and management professionals are afraid of, you know, public speaking is, if not the top of the list, it's right up there. Yeah. And I'm, I'm guessing that hasn't changed a whole lot. I think the average human being is petrified at the idea of standing up in front of a group and speaking. How do, how do you help yeah. people get past that? Well, like I said before, low stakes practice is hugely helpful. Um, <clears throat> you probably, you know, I feel like uh, emotional intelligence was big like five years ago, uh, kind of a buzzy thing. But I think one thing I took away from that was self uh, heightened self-awareness. There's a lot of social awareness and like understanding where people are at in emotional intelligence. Like, is Doug understanding? Me? Does Doug like me right now? Um, that kind of stuff, worrying about what the other people are thinking. Uh, <clears throat> what I find lacking is self-awareness, specifically interoception, like awareness of my physicality. And uh, a lot of people if they're dealing with anxiety and dealing with stage fright or dealing with um, that kind of stuff, they'll be in the middle of a presentation and not even realize that their body is going nuts. Like their shoulders are, and we can all see it from the audience. Their shoulders are raising, their breathing's intense. They can't make it through a sentence without taking a gasp. And uh, what I love about the personal aspect of, of uh, emotional intelligence is you start to train to recognize those things and you can <clears throat> self-regulate uh, and you don't have to put that onus on the audience. Uh, you've, w one thing we learn in clown is if you're coming in there onto stage for the, to have the audience make you feel better, you have failed before you even stepped on stage. Uh, that is not their job. And it gets icky. Like, uh, we can feel it. And if and if you're looking for validation when you're speaking, if you're looking for validation from your team, that's not how it's got to work. Like you need to build that within yourself. 
Yeah. Yeah. It, there, there are so many things I've heard over the years that people have tried to offer up as encouragements and tidbits and, you know, some of them are great and some of them not so much. And, and where do you think the best public speakers, what, what area of their trade have they been able to perfect that, that gets them up to that kind of cream of the crop status? Hmm. Well, I mean, the people I want to hear the most can't wait to tell me about something. They don't even think maybe their hair's a mess. Maybe their ties all askew. They can't wait to just tell me this information. Uh, that's the person I want to listen to. Uh, all the polish that comes with time and maybe handlers or something like that. But the person who feels like they just would rather step out of the way and just get this information to me, they're so excited about it. Those are the people that uh, I think are incredible public speakers. And uh, those are the people I try and help because there's a lot of understandably like non-native speakers. They're very concerned about grammar uh, and being understood, of course, it makes perfect sense. Uh, but I think once we get over some hurdles, like pacing, that sort of thing, it's important to just be okay and know that your passion is going to surmount all those issues you think that are happening in your listener's mind. Yeah. As you were saying that, one guy that came to my mind that I've listened to, and I love to just listen to him speak, is is John Maxwell, and um, he is um, he's good on tape and and video. But if if you ever get a chance to go to one of his conferences, it's almost indescribable how magical his his keynote can be. He just he he takes you to another place, and you're just sitting there going, "How did we get here? What? How did this happen? What? What in the world? You know now, you know his his comeuppance in in the public speaking realm. He was a preacher for a long time, so he he learned like only those guys can how to work a crowd, and um, and and I mean that in a dis a respectful way, no disrespect, but. You know, there's there's a lot to be said for being the guy that has to speak to an audience every week and <laughs> have them feel like they got something out of it. Absolutely. So, uh, so there's a lot more to it in the way of not just presentation, but the content that you are bringing, the message that you are bringing. To your point. Sure. I mean, there's there's techniques, there's rhetorical <clears throat> techniques, there's storytelling techniques, there's uh, things that are are helpful. I I balk it going too far into kind of the the revival um style uh and and highly emotional language first of all because that doesn't you know resonate with technical speakers that i'm dealing with and frankly if they talk that way to their audience the oh, audience yeah, will be like no. what the heck are you talking about <laughs> like why right. are you talking like that but there are takeaways there are things that you can utilize as long as it's not manipulative as long as both you and the audience know what's going on i kind of draw the line at any kind of 
NLP influence type uh, usage of, of some of those rhetorical techniques. You know, speaking of that, there are definitely a lot of coaches that are out there trying to help leaders develop better leadership influence by looking at things like NLP and certain as other aspects of, of brain science and um, digging real deep into personality assessment and all those kinds of things. And part of me says, if you're putting that on a poor guy that just needs to get up and give a, a team speech, that's, that's a heavy load. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I I steer away from that. I my whole game plan, my whole ball game in clown was the more authentic I can be without putting the need for validation on the audience, the better it's going to be. Uh and there's no element of manipulation in that equation. Yeah. Yeah. That's real interesting. I, you know, I'm I'm sitting here thinking about just again. I go back to my other question at the on the short list of things that leaders often fear that public speaking becomes part of it. And I know, well, I'll say it this way: every CEO that I have ever known, somewhat personally their companies have all afforded them the chance to go to some kind of speaking school, you know, and so they do get trained officially to be better public speakers because, you know, whether it's, I mean, if you're a publicly traded company, you're going to have to sit on an earnings call and there's probably nothing more daunting than trying to deliver that message to wall street. But, um, what do you think if if you're starting with one of these leaders for the first time where where do you take them on this journey how do you how do you get them started on that journey uh great question i i mean i just kind of check their pulse i i try and find some some video of them like in front of a live audience i find that jumping on a zoom call and having somebody like practice a, a speech just with me on the other side doesn't always really translate to really what their challenges are um and then we just start looking at presence like how can we get present to the moment uh of what's happening and stop pull my pull their attention off the content for a second trust that the content will be rehearsed. The content will be ready to go. Trust in that. And we focus on what's happening in the moment, the present. That's presence, executive presence. Um, and when I see people who own a room, they are absolutely conscious of what's happening in that room. But they also are absolutely confident in their message. So you can't not rehearse, you can't not practice, but once that is done, learning how to be in the present, be with what's happening, that's what we start to work with. You know, you you raised a good topic. There's a lot of times I'll have coaching clients and the thing they want to talk about is this notion of executive presence. They're they're maybe climbing the ladder and somehow in a recent 
review, they've been told they need to work on their, you know, quote, quote, executive presence. And if if there's ever been something that's a little more amorphic in, in nature than executive <laughs> presence, I, I don't know so what true. else it would be. Um <laughs> It, and, and it's I've I've often not to be facetious, but I've often said executive presence falls in the same bucket as pornography, as the famous Supreme Court judge <laughs> <I know>. said. <laughs> Can't define it, but I know it when I see it. You know <laughs> exactly. Um, same same kind of idea. So, any any thoughts on what you tell people if they ask you about that? You know, how do I show up with more executive presence? Well, I love this, this, I love what you said about, uh, I know it when I see it, but I think the esoteric high level thing we talk about in my class is developing perspective. When I see someone who embodies executive presence, it comes from the ability to understand where everyone's coming from in the room to be able to compassionately be in everyone's shoes and yet also at the same time be completely confident in the direction that the company is going or the message that I'm delivering. But at the same time, not steamrolling and over everyone else's, being able to right. hold space for all those things. That's the high level. Easy to say, how do you do it? <laughs> um, but when it comes down to brass tacks, I think if people just want things to, to do now, slow down, take pauses, learn eye contact, um, uh, be conscious of your breathing. These are things that non-verbally exhibit executive presence as you're working on the experience that's going to bring you that perspective. I use that same kind of recommendation when people ask me about it, especially for the non-native language speakers. There's there's something inevitable that when someone's in a a, a tense moment, their vocal pitch goes up, their uh, pace accelerates. It, it's it's almost a nervous staccato of of speaking, and I've I've encouraged people to understand that that's an automatic tell. The audience knows you're nervous. You know, stop. You know, you gotta take your take your pitch back down. Take your cadence back down. Just a notch or two especially for the, the non-native English speakers, because your dialect may be getting in the way when you, when you get that pace running fast. It, it may be very hard for the audience ears to embrace what you're saying. As, as much as they may want to hear what you're saying, they're struggling with it because of your pacing. So if you slow it down and make it more deliberate, you end up exuding a lot more of that command and confidence of the moment. I mean, the great thing is, it sounds like we're talking about Q&A or dealing with antagonistic audiences or something like that. And luckily, there are frameworks. There's a framework I teach about how, like a step-by-step, -step, you get a question, what's the first thing you do? What's the second thing you do? And there's just some kinds of things that 
can be installed through O-Stakes practice. Practicing in a class situation can help you seem more confident in those situations. And then from uh, actual mental um, uh, uh, way of coming at it, you're probably familiar with the, the Minto's Pyramid Principle from McKinsey Consulting. Uh, that's where you start with the summarizing topic and then only get into the detail that is necessary. What I find oftentimes with technical folks is if they're thrown a question, the they will answer with all the data first, landing at the conclusion, whereas the executive, all they want is give me the conclusion and then follow up with the data. And I get it because like, I want to justify my job. I want to justify all the work I did. But what your audience wants to hear is just give me the answer and I'll tell you when to stop in terms of the level of detail rather than leading with all the detail and taking right. me through your process. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, and part of that, even if you are prone to do that sort of detail first, I get back to the idea of emotional intelligence, having the awareness to read the room. And if if they've started to glaze over, that's your cue, dude, you know, pull it back, you know. <laughs> yeah. Put a period on this. Yeah. As was famously said in a sitcom one time, pull up, Rose, pull up. Um, <laughs> you, you know, when it's uh, when you're uh, flooding everybody with that detail, it, it's the old classic. If the boss asks you what time it is, don't tell him how to make the watch. Exactly. <laughs> but it's understandable. It's for these these technical folks I deal with at Google, like they're that's their day-to-day -day is yeah. is going in the weeds. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and uh, along that line that that brings to mind the uh, the middle manager, the guy that's, you know, not at the executive level, but has climbed up a couple of rungs and is kind of stuck in that no man's land between the frontline engineers and, and delivery people versus the very senior management. So that's where the ability to read the room is so vital because if you're sitting in front of a bunch of technical people, you may want to be able and be prepared to get into the weeds and have those discussions. But if you're, you know, the next meeting after that, if you're with a bunch of senior people, to your point, they just want those answers first. And if they need more detail, they'll ask you for it. I find a great exercise that might be helpful for your audience would be, if you're coming into a presentation or some kind of a meeting where you have an idea of some questions you're going to get, having a partner ask you those questions, uh, time it the first answer, uh, have you do it again, say the answer is two minutes. Have you do it again in one minute? Have you do it again in 30 seconds? Have you do it again in 15 seconds? And it will make you like start to find the important parts. I find that to be a really helpful uh, exercise and kind of mind blowing for people. Yeah, for sure. Especially again, if you're coming from that reference point of, of normally operating in the details, you know, deep in the weeds, so to speak, is a regular outcome for you. They usually get to the end like, oh my God, I didn't even realize that's what I was saying. I don't know why I was saying all that other stuff at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> right. 
Well, and uh, it reminds me of an acronym that we use in coaching. Um, it's uh, it's the word waste, W-A-I-S-T, as in Beltline, um, and it stands for why am I still talking? <laughs> and uh, young aspiring coaches, usually inevitably they'll see a moment and then they'll take off with, you know, the – coaching or consulting type advice for the client. And it's like, it's not what you're supposed to be doing. You know, it, you're supposed to be asking the questions and nothing more. So I'm, I certainly fall into that category often. It's like, yeah. waste. Why, why are you still talking? <laughs> <laughs> well, Don, speaking of, we're about up on time. So uh, I, I really appreciate you coming in and, and joining us here. Tell everybody the best way to get a hold of you if they're looking for more information. Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, if you are interested in uh, beefing up your technical talks, uh, winktechtalks.com. I also have a free exercise if you want to work on what we are talking about, being able to split your attention from your content as well as the team that you're speaking to. Just go to doncolliver.com forward slash engage and you can grab that PDF. Great. Well, folks, as always, we'll have that information in the show notes, those links and those connect points. So uh, drop down and, and check those out. So, Don, one last time, thank you for sitting in with us. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Doug. This was a blast. <clears throat> Well, and on that note, folks, we are going to sign off, say goodbye. I do want to remind everybody we got a video version of this over on YouTube, channel by the same name, Leadership Powered by Common Sense. Hop over there, subscribe or hit the bell, and uh, leave us a comment. Let us know any thoughts you've got, feedback you want to share. would love to hear from you. For now, we are going to sign off, say goodbye, and wish you a great day. Take care. You've been listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense, hosted by Doug Thorpe. If you would like to know more about the coaching and advisory services he provides, visit DougThorpe.com.